Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the Problems of Fun, episode two. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is a brand new podcast all about game design. If you haven't yet, you should listen to our first episode. It was magnifique, award-winning episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we can only assume. Yeah, well, we, we, it hasn't been released yet, but once it's get released, presumably all the awards will go straight to us. <laughs> Before we start, we were going to actually do a little bit of follow-up on the previous episode. AJ. So first, last episode, we had mentioned hookless games and you had asked me for some examples of hookless games oh yes yeah we didn't go back to that so here we are so before i start i want to throw down some criteria for my list it has to have sold well right because that's the whole point of what we're talking about. oh yeah <laughs> i can name many hookless games that were never signed <laughs> <laughs> secondly i have to have played it because i have to know the game intimately to know whether or not the game actually had a hook next it has to have been the past five years you gave me that restriction it doesn't necessarily have to have no hook it just has to have a bad hook. well also it has to start and end with a vowel if you remember that was also a restriction <laughs> and it has to have uh, not some sort of excuse as to why it sold well that, that's sort of, uh, otherwise it'd be cheating. An excuse as to why it sold well could also be called a hook. <laughs> right, so as a couple of examples here, um, I'm not saying hardback because it's a sequel to paperback, a successful game. Right, Right. That that is the hook, yeah. Or something like we said before, if it, it was designed by Eric Lang, well, that's good enough for a hook. I mean, again, I'm sure he's designing every one of his games with hooks themselves, but I'm not using the, that classification of a game. So... Have you heard of Trash Pandas? I have heard of Trash Pandas. That was a little European game, right? No, no. So, well, it, it's uh, like a quirky, Ameritrashy sort of game with dice and take that card. So, but as far away from a Euro as you can get. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to send you a quick link to BGG for the profile for it. And then you can tell me what you think the hook is. Because I have an answer as to what the hook is. I just don't think it's a particularly good one. Loading it up now. One quick thing I'll say is that these are all games that sold well from my perspective at my store. So these are all games that we had to restock multiple times that people were asking for. These are popular. I don't know exactly the numbers that were sold in total. Uh, but from my perspective, from my store, they sold well. This is interesting. Is this originally a Game Right game? Because Game Right have got such incredible market presence uh yeah i believe it was a game right game originally i could be mistaken on that though. so looking at this uh quanchai art too which is lovely so game right cross quanchai is not a hook you're right that that doesn't in itself constitute a hook stonemaier i would say well just being a stonemaier game is a hook but game right while they make consistently exceptional games i don't think anyone's like a new game right game let me buy that and talk about that with all my friends Exactly. And you hit the nail on the head. The two hooks there. One is a moderately known publisher, but it's not even particularly uh, pushed on the on the box, right? Like the, one of the reasons why Stonemaier Games is a brand and a hook in and of itself is because all of its games are consistently very lovingly produced and the logo is front and center and very obvious, right? And people will look at that right. and recognize And he it. builds buzz for weeks ahead of every release or months ahead of every release. And he has a devoted base of <laughs> 60,000 people on his mailing list. So I agree that both Game Right and the, the art is by Quan Chai Mori, a very well-known artist in a specific style that is known to that artist. And that can be a hook. I just don't see it with this game. I don't think that this style is particularly evocative. I don't think that there's a, a particularly huge draw. Again, it's good. It's definitely good art. It's just... The theme, 
the mechanics, nothing really comes together to say this is a must-have game, right? But we sold tons of copies. Very, very popular kids game. People walking in and asking for it or people just seeing it on the shelf and being like, this one? Both. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So this, this, this would be, a, I think you've delivered. This is a very good example of a largely hookless game. So I've got another one, and uh, this one, again, I, I know what the hooks are in these. I'm going to, I think it might be fun yeah, for Princess just trying to sink. So Arkham Horror, the living card game. What's the hook well, there? I mean, Arkham Horror is the, the hook there. Um, exactly. <laughs> and then living card game is the second hook there. Like those are, the, the title contains both the big hooks. I, I think that one's pretty much a no-brainer. Well, see, I think with that one, it's interesting because it does have a, a brand with it. But the gameplay of this one is so different from the original one. It's it's a completely different genre and appeals to different people. And I think that there's very little overlap between people who purchase one LCG and purchase another LCG. Because each LCG is such a monumental commitment. It's thousands of dollars if you want everything for a lot of them. And I'm not saying that there isn't overlap. There's definitely people who buy just all the LCGs of all the different varieties because they like the system so much. Right. right? But I think this is an interesting case study because of that. Of course, it has gone extremely popular there. Uh, have you heard of It's a Wonderful World? Oh, I played this one, actually. Yeah, I have I've played this. So tell me, what do you think is the hook? Sure. I remember actually when I was playing this, I was like, yeah, this is fine, but I don't know why I would play this above anything else. Like, it's it's very, it's got very striking art. It's a very good looking game. It was interesting to play. It was, it was a fun little engine builder. But at the end of it, I was like, cool, I've played this game. I don't really have any need to play it a second time. So it's actually sold quite well. And I think it's better than you do. Again, completely hookless game. And this didn't sell like as well as Arkham Horror LCG, obviously. <laughs> But this is one that, you know, we sold a lot of copies of. It had a second run on Kickstarter. It's got an expansion on the way. It's definitely pretty popular for its genre, at least, of a drafting engine building game. The closest thing to a hook, I think, is that it really pushes uh, hate drafting in a way that most other drafting games don't. In this one, basically, you can draft a card and you can use it as a blueprint and spend resources on it to complete the blueprint. You can also trash a card to get a resource but you get the resource right away before your buildings start producing. And the game is all about sequencing so that you can complete one building before it has a chance to produce in order to get resources for the next round. Like That's the mechanical hook, but again, that's not flashy enough, frankly. Right. This one, it's funny. This is the only one of the three I've played, and my friend got me to play this. And I'm trying to remember now what he said. I think it was just like, <laughs> I got this new game. Do you want to play it? Or I played this last night and I quite liked it. And this this is a friend of mine who backs every Kickstarter. So I think this was probably a Kickstarter originally. It was, yes. And so every single Kickstarter game he basically gets a copy of. He's he's the whale. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh, yeah, it's another Kickstarter game from my friend. Sure, I'll play it. And I played it and I was like, yep, that was another game. It was very well produced and it was very a very pretty game. I was, I was impressed by that. But yeah, no, th these are three very hookless games. This one might be a little bit more controversial. So I'm excited. Because I thought we would disagree about at least something on this list. Have you played the game Vindication, or are you familiar with I've it? I've never even heard of this. <laughs> so that's a quite popular Euro. Was it 2019, I want to say? This is the only game from this company? No. Look how well done on Kickstarter, though. I think it got um, close to a million dollars. 10,000 backers, I want to say. Yeah, this is, a, this is a first time creator, too. <laughs> right? <laughs> so if anyone needs a hook, it's a first time creator, right? I believe I flagged in the first episode pretty early on. This is all one guy's opinion, and I might be wrong. And apparently I'm just... This is a list of me being wrong, because I'm just like, I don't get why any of these sold at all. <laughs> right? 
<laughs> okay, well, I'm glad we're on the same page. I honestly thought we might disagree with some of this. And, and that's not to say that you can be like, well, these didn't have hooks and they did well. I mean, I guess clearly you can and go do it and then send me a copy of your game that made a million dollars on Kickstarter with no hook. But <laughs> I feel to set yourself up to success, you should probably start thinking about hook pretty early. Yeah, so the thing is, is these are exceptions rather than the rule. And if you don't have a hook, you might succeed in spite of it. But you could do so much better because of it. You know what I mean? If Vindication had some sort of really juicy, unique theme instead of just, you know, fantasy, whatever, or it had something else going on for it, I'm sure it could have do done a lot better than it did. I think part of the reason why Vindication did very well is because it's a good-looking, medium-heavy Euro, which in 2019, around that time, there was a bit of a resurgence in good-looking, medium-heavyweight Euro games with a little bit more theme. I mean, it doesn't, but it's pretending to. <laughs> <laughs> and another big thing is, this isn't a hook, but if you have a hook or not, if you can get the attention of what I call tastemakers, right? That's a common, like, social influencer term. I was going to say, you, you didn't invent that term. <laughs> right. But, but I, applying it to, to board gamers... If you can it, make what I call a board game, then... Uh... <laughs> but what I mean is... Um, <laughs> The tastemakers don't necessarily have to be people on social media specifically. It can just be people with good followings, right? There's a lot of people who just watch Rado runs throughs and they right. will just watch every single one of his videos that he puts out because they know that if he reviews a Euro well, they're like, well, my tastes are similar. I'm going to watch that. Or even if he doesn't like them, you can watch... I, I watch a lot of Rado. I really enjoy mm. watching Rado stuff because at the end of it, you know how the game works. You have a really good understanding and you've been entertained throughout. So it's not that if Rado likes it, I'll like it. Or if Rado hates it, I'll like it. It's just like, I can see exactly how the game works. And from that, I can determine whether or not I like it. And even if he didn't like it and I don't like it, I've still been entertained for two hours while he played through a game. Absolutely. That's one reason why uh, Shep and Sit Down is so popular, I think. Because, yes, they review games... But they're basically just comedy sketches with reviews attached to them, right? Right. And that's not me talking down. That's that's like huge praise. I think they are fabulous. Yeah, the, the two biggest influences in board games are number one, shut up and sit down. Number two, Rado. If you can get mm -hmm. one or both of those behind your game, you will double your sales count from what you would do otherwise. At least. There was one time that there was a game, and I forget what it was, and they offhandedly mentioned it on their podcast. It was like, you know, it took up maybe two minutes of, of airtime. They talked about it and they were like, yeah, it was pretty cool. Had this kind of interesting thing going on. But overall, like my takeaway wasn't this game is great. My takeaway was, oh, okay, it was, it was all right. I got like four phone calls that day when I got to work asking me <laughs> when they could get that game. Like if you can get the attention of a tastemaker, then you could put yourself ahead really far. And this is not me telling you to go and harass, shut up and sit down. No, that, that, <laughs> I really like the way that shut up and sit down do it, which is that they will sometimes take review copies. But for the most part, they decide internally what to review by going out to a store and buying it. Mm -hmm. And most reviewers aren't in that position. It's a very privileged position to be in. But I really like that complete separation of publisher chumminess and what they review. I really appreciate how they are so comfortable being negative and so comfortable being positive, right? I think I've seen a few different reviewers where when they have to review something negatively and they got a review copy, you can tell that like they're being honest, but they're being kind of apprehensive. And shut up and sit down, we'll just light the box on fire, you know? <laughs> Rado, I think, doesn't even do reviews if he didn't like the game. He's like, why would I make a 90-minute video of me running through a game that I don't want to actually run through? And fair enough. And sometimes people complain like, oh, all of Rado's games he loves. He's just whatever. And it's like, well, no, he's decided to only make videos of things that he likes. 
that's completely legit. Why would you not do that? Absolutely. I do think that you miss out on some value of a critique, though, of a constructive, this part of the game was really interesting, kind of fell flat, I wanted more out of it. I think that there's a lot in negative reviews that game designers can learn, for instance. If anybody here doesn't listen to So Very Wrong About Games, change that, because the way that they talk about games can teach you a lot if you're if you're new and you don't know a lot about game design. My favorite reviewer is Dan Thurit. Oh, I don't know how you pronounce his name. Dan Thoreau, who does a website called Space Biff. And Space Biff is a terrible website name for what he does, but it's just board game reviews. He just, uh, he doesn't even call them reviews. He, he calls them uh, critiques because they really are. He has this incredible knowledge of games and every week or every x days he just posts another update and i don't have very similar taste to him but i will always read his content i just find it really interesting because of the way that he analyzes and picks apart games he was the one who got me into vast actually way back in was it 2015 2016 he just talked about it so well so if you haven't yet yeah definitely check out space biff.com terrible name for a website or, or t-h-u-r-o-t.com and definitely subscribe i support him on patreon i find his stuff really interesting he's reviewed one of my games he got the box he was like this is not for me. He gave it to two other people. They played it wrong and it was a very negative review. So this is not me saying, go check out this guy. He gives all my games great reviews. I really just think he's an excellent, excellent reviewer. Man, it's so, so one more thing I just want to uh, touch on before we move on to the main episode. I think we both are on the same page here where we intend to be very honest, but not cruel with this podcast. So we have been already in episode one and earlier in this episode, we have talked pretty negatively about some games and we have talked positively <laughs> about games. Um, we're not trying to be mean or punch down or anything like that. Speak for yourself, AJ. I just want game designers to suffer. That's why I'm doing this. Oh, this well. <laughs> well, for my no, part. <laughs> no, I, I just believe in being very candid. I don't think there's any point in, in pulling your punches. And it's a small industry and people know me. And if you listen to this and you're like, what? Peter didn't think that It's a Wonderful World had a hook. I'm never working with Jellybean Games again. Okay, sure. Like, I'm not going to not have opinions on things for risk of someone not working with me. That's not interesting to me. <laughs> Absolutely. We're definitely not going to pull our punches when the result of that is going to be that we can't talk honestly about uh, game design. Right. And similarly, I, I will flag if I have a conflict of interest. Like, I work with a bunch of companies, and if I work with one and I start talking about them, I'll probably mention that so I'm not just like, oh, well, let me tell you about how amazing Australian men podcast host games are because oh, just such such good stuff they never go wrong oh yeah I do have a game coming out with them oh yeah how could I forget that but I'm gonna be pretty honest either way I think I it's, it's how I operate listening through the last episode I noticed a few things that I felt either I was just wrong about or didn't address sufficiently one is that I was like Scythart not that good from distance I don't know what I was talking about there, so I thought it looks great from a distance on a table. <laughs> I think it's an incredibly pretty game from halfway across the room. I think I was imagining some of the cards, which maybe don't look so good, but the board as a whole is actually very colourful. I was looking at pictures of it the other day, and I was like, man, this is just a really striking board even from across the room. And then you had the different colour of plastic miniatures and the meeples and the resources, and I do actually think the game has quite good table presence even from halfway across the room. It's funny, because I just re-listened to that, and I didn't catch that. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, maybe I cut it in the edit. Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> That'd be fun. Yeah, follow up to a thing that I cut from the first one. <laughs> At one point, you said something that I wish I'd actually leapt on a little bit more, which is that you made this point of when you are playtesting one of your games and it gets very ferociously negative feedback, you're like, that's a good sign. And I know you and I know what you're trying to say. But I just don't want to run the risk of people walking away being like, oh, yes, everyone who's played this game hates it. 
that means this is going to be a hit. I think that you need more than just ferociously negative feedback. I think you need ideally someone to like it on some level. I mentioned last time that I don't do particularly well with games that have extremely negative feedback. I'm like, maybe I should fix this. But there is definitely something to be said for working out who your game is for, targeting it to that group, and realizing that other people are not going to enjoy it. But that is very different to, yeah, I've been playtesting this game for two years and everyone's hated it, so I must be on the right track, which is an attitude I encounter all the time and I really wish I didn't. Wow. I was going to say, it uh, seemed like an unnecessary addendum, but you're certainly right. And, and if anyone <laughs> took it that way, that's not what I meant at all. Uh, more of what I was going for was um, passion is what you're looking for. If everyone that plays your game likes your game, but that's it, they're just like, yeah, that's, that's fine. That's competent. That's not good enough. But if you have people who are passionately like, yes, this game is amazing. And people who are passionately like, that is not for me. I do not like that at all. That can be a good thing because it means that people are actually engaging with your game more and it's eliciting reactions. I'm not saying that negative reactions are good in and of themselves. Right. I flag this because I work in a bunch of different industries and there are people who will take any excuse to keep on pushing their very bad idea. I'll, I'll use an example from business. I'm in a business Slack channel and one person had this idea for a podcast company. He was like, our podcasts, we're going to put up the first five minutes for free and then to listen to anything past that you have to pay. And I was like, no, no one's going to want that. Like, that's not an idea that I think anyone's going to want to buy. And again, as mentioned earlier in this episode, I can be wrong. I'm not this infallible person who knows all, but I just could not imagine anyone finding this to be an attractive business model. And his response, no joke, was the fact that you hate it tells me that I'm on the right track. <laughs> There's a quote that's often attributed to Einstein, which is, if you have a good idea, you don't have to be worried about people stealing it. You have to be worried about no one believing it's a good idea. And I kind of get what they're going for with this, but it's really not as simple as, ooh, people hate this thing. It must be good. <laughs> and that is really how people try to take this. So I just wanted to flag it. Please don't go out, play your game a bunch, have everyone hate it and be like, well, according to AJ <laughs> on Fun Problems, that means I've got the next big hit. <laughs> Did you have anything else you want to talk about before we got into the main episode? Yeah, just one more brief addendum. I was talking about product first, and I just failed to mention something which I think is very important, which is if you're designing product first, products need a hook. Again, we've managed to find five exceptions in the last five years of gaming. But generally speaking, if you are trying to make a game that sells, you want to start thinking about hook. And so if you're designing product first, you've got to bake that hook in right from the start, whether that is theme, whether that is title, whether that is components, whether that is mechanical hook. If you are designing product first, you are also, in a sense, designing hook first. It, one is almost a subset of the other, or completely part of the other. Mm -hmm. So, with all out of the way, AJ, what are we talking about this week? Today we're talking about common mistakes new designers make, which seems like a pretty fitting episode to start off our podcast on after the pilot. So, the way that this episode is going to break down is we're going to walk through the stages of designing games, start to finish. So we're going to walk through problems that come up during the inception, problems that come up during the design, then prototyping, playtesting, pitching, and then a catch-all miscellaneous category. So first off, you know, coming up with the idea, the inception of the game. Yeah, the inception is when you have a game that's designed within a game about game design, right? <laughs> of course. I, I thought that everyone was working on a game within a game. <laughs> a big problem I see is designers not having a goal in mind when they are first designing the game. Do you see that? So in a sense, this touches on what we talked about last time in that there are as many different ways to do it as there are designers where I will just be like, I want to make something. And my friend will be like, here is my design document. I am going to design this game. More and more, I'm like, here are the 
precepts I want to try. Is that even a word? Precept? I think so. I don't know what it means, but I've heard it before. Yeah. <laughs> more and more, I am like, here are the things I want to accomplish with this, which I guess are goals, but they're not like, I want to make a game that sells. They're like, I want to prove to myself that I can make a game that has no turn phases and no words, stuff like that. Sure. So, so what do you mean when you say new designers don't have goals? Sometimes when I'm seeing new designs, what happens is a designer won't have an idea of what they want the end product to be. So they might start off and just be like, oh, I like this theme or whatever. But then over the course of the evolution of it, they don't have direction. And as they reach decision points, taking the design in direction A or direction B, they don't have a compass pointing them north. They don't know exactly which way to go and they end up having to just try things blindly. I'm not going to name names. No, no, of course not. But there was a designer who's a wonderful person and they started off with a game that had a solid hook and then the design required them to remove the hook and then they kept designing the game. And at that point, what are you doing? Because now you're just designing a game that has, <laughs> yes, you're designing a game that might be competent at the end, but you need a new hook to replace the old one. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm going to talk about two things. Firstly, I'm a writer, as I will incessantly bring up, and there's considered to be three types of writers, pantsers, plotters, and gardeners. A pantser is someone who writes by the seat of their pants. They will just sit down, start writing, and at the end of it, have a story or a novel, despite having absolutely no path whatsoever. A plotter, as you can tell, is the opposite of that, where they're like, okay, day one, start writing outline. Day five, finish writing outline. Now I can write a novel, now that I know exactly what's going to happen every step of the way. And then there's gardener, which is kind of halfway in between, which is when you're making a garden in, in real life, I've never made a garden, so correct me if I'm wrong, you've got to have five elephants, a hat, and what? a <laughs> When you're making a garden in real life, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, you won't often have a clear, like, here is exactly where this plant is going to go, here's exactly where this plant, but you'll have a vision. You'll be like, okay, at the end of this, I'm going to have... I don't know, garden, so I'm just talking about a mouse here. This whole section's going to be red, this whole section's going to be blue, and then you'll, you know, kind of work out the details as you go along. So for me, not having a goal is not necessarily a red flag. There have been designs where I've gone in and been like, man, I really like this mechanism, and I just want to see what I can do with it, and I'll just start pantsing, basically, just start designing from that. As a writer, I am much more of a gardener or a pantser. I've never been able to plot out a whole story. As soon as I plot out a story, I'm bored of it and I don't want to write that story. So I've learned that I really have to go in not knowing what's going to happen. So yeah, I don't know if I would call that necessarily a mistake made by new designers. Hmm, that's interesting. But the second thing I'll say is that Eric Lang talks about this a lot. Uh, I think I heard it on Board Game Design Lab, which is an excellent podcast about game design and I thoroughly recommend. Gabe on that interviewed Eric Lang and... I've heard Eric talk about this a few times, but I think on that specific episode, he said, first of all, work out why you want to design games, because he has, he has a similar three-tier categorization system. I can't remember what the three are. I remember one is Rockstar. He's like, a lot of people want to be rock stars. That's your... I'm trying to think who's a rock star in game design now. Um, I mean, would Eric Lang be? I forget how he identified himself. I can't remember. Well, no, he doesn't categorize himself as it. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, okay. Like maybe a Steve Jackson's, where... The goal is for everyone to go, ooh, look at that person, they designed a game. That's the that's your designer who, I mean, Tom Vassell's probably a good example in that he really wants people to know who he is. And oh, me, actually, I'm probably a very good example of that. I have a blue hair and blue beard. I was thinking that, but I wasn't sure <laughs> I was like, to say that. <laughs> who is there? Who do I know? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a rock star designer in that 
I want people to know who I am. Every single one of my games has a blue beard somewhere in the art and somewhere on the box. And I have a very prominent presence and I go to every con I can and I meet everyone I can. And now I'm doing a podcast. So that's one of the three rockstar game designer where you're designing because you want to be known as a game designer. And I can't remember the other two, but basically they are someone who just wants to make the stuff and doesn't care about the industry. And there's people who just want to make money. I think those are the three. I think it's the artist for the person who's just making it because they want to make the thing. And uh, I think it's something along the lines of like business person. Or, or yeah, yeah. Something like that. And then he's like, so if you want to be a professional game designer, you should probably work out which of those three you want to be. But also, it's okay to want to design games and not want to do it professionally at all. Some people just really like the little puzzle. For some people, it's a social thing. In my Toronto crew, there's people who come along every week. And sure, it'd be nice if they got published. But really, it's an excuse to come hang out with us every week and play games in progress. So rather than having a goal for that specific game, maybe work out why you want to make games in the first place. Because if you want to make games to be published, that is going to take you down a very different path to if you just like hanging out with people every week and making games. They're both completely valid. One is not better than the other. This podcast is definitely more geared towards the former. So rather than having a very clear goal for that game, I would try to work out why why are you doing this at all? That's fair. I was definitely aiming that advice towards people that were aiming to have a product at the end of this. I'd be surprised how many uh, artists joined us, but I mean, awesome if they do, <laughs> but take the advice I give with a grain of salt, because remember my background is working at a retail store. So everything that I say goes sort of through that lens, right? Right. What would you call yourself? Business person, artist, or rockstar? So I want to say artist, but it's, it's rockstar. <laughs> I was going to say, the, the fact that you're hosting a podcast really kind of answers the question in and of itself. <laughs> like for, for me, uh, I definitely, I mean, everyone's a blend, right? Like whenever we look oh, through course, these lenses, yeah. it's, never, it's never perfect. I really enjoy looking at unique design space and sort of iconoclastic concepts of what we can do but that's more to do with like just how my personality is as opposed to like my goals my goal is definitely be successful it sounds very smug when i say it like this but i really look forward to the day if it comes where i can walk into a room and people are like whoa that's aj and <laughs> i mean what can you do that's who i am <laughs> start dyeing your hair that's what you can do uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know if i didn't love the shade that i currently have i i would but <laughs> you're a very handsome man well thank you uh, we'll have to put a photo of in the show notes Ooh. i definitely am I'm a rock star just that's how i'm built as a person but secondarily to that i'm an artist i love the craft of games i'm so fascinated by it i love breaking it down to systems again this is the other reason i'm doing this podcast is that i'm, I'm primarily rock star secondarily artist and i just want to talk about how to make your games better business i wish i was better at i'm honestly that's my weakest of the three if you think of them as strengths but I care much more about making a good game than I do about making money. And that is that has hurt my company from time to time. I can tell you that. <laughs> and see, it's interesting because I always design with making money in mind, but that's not my goal. It's just a lens that I look through because of my background, right? Right. I, I think that if you want to be an artist and do this full time, or if you want to be a rock star and have people heard of you, you have to think about money. It's just a requirement. Absolutely. Now, if you're looking to try and make a marketable game, you have to think through what sorts of things allow your game to succeed, right? So uh, I'll give an example of the least marketable game I've ever seen. And again, I'm not trying to be mean because, you know, the people <laughs> who I'm talking about probably, well, might listen to this podcast someday. So this person had a CCG war game. Yeah, no, as soon as you said CCG, I'm like, oh, cool, they're making a game that will never get made. And again, nothing wrong with that, but if you're trying to get a game made, making a game that'll never get made is a very bad way to do that. 
And then secondly, by war, you're referring to the old classic card game, War, where you both flip up a card and the higher card wins, no, no, right? No, no, no. I'm referring to Hex Encounter War Games. Oh, War Game. Oh. Oh. I mean, I guess collectible miniature games are a thing with that new Fantasy Flight from Eric Lang and Simon, so maybe that's potentially a thing someday, but when you're starting out, definitely definitely don't do that. <laughs> so part of the thing is when you have... I'm, I'm, I'm going to just kind of deep dive into this one for the sake of example, but it was cardboard tiles that you'd be getting in the booster packs, right? So part of the thing is with a collectible game, you have to really care about the objects you're collecting. That's why in Magic the Gathering, they put so much emphasis on some cards objectively being more powerful and the art and the flavor, it all has to jive so you really care about the thing that you own. Artificial scarcity through uh, CCG models also builds that in, right? But you have to care about the thing in order to be willing to put the money out to get the thing. In collectible games like uh, X-Wing, for instance, it's a miniatures collectible game. Each of those ships is very lovingly painted, comes pre-built, game's quick and easy to play obviously it has star wars attached to it but right. the things that make the ship matter as a collectible thing is because that one ship has a big impact on your squad you remember it nostalgically from star wars and you say oh i'm fighting with an x-wing and it feels like you're shooting things around with an x-wing and that thing that you have is really lovingly created you can make a pretty nice cardboard tile but it's only going to go so far for sure and the other thing with this one in particular was, this is a classic thing that we'll bring up later, the sales pitch was, it's perfectly mathematically balanced. Oh, so, yeah, that's, that's not a, that's not a <laughs> I want to jump more into that one later, so... <laughs> gotcha. One thing we've talked a lot about is hooks, and that's because the hook is frankly the most important part of your game. One thing I would suggest is if you're not sure if you have a good hook or not, test it. Go to a friendly local game store, walk up to someone and say, hey, if I told you X game existed, would you care? Ask the friendly local game store owner. Ask people who won't feel bad hurting your feelings. And that will give you a good idea of if your hook is good enough. I mean, strangers are not necessarily the best person to avoid hurting your feelings because strangers will often be like, oh yeah, I'd play that. What I found really helpful while playtesting is... Rather than say, would you buy this? Because everyone will be like, oh yeah, I would buy this. Yeah, you're a person. I see you as a person. You've made this. I would buy this because to say no would hurt your feelings. Instead, I ask, how much would you pay for this? Mm. And for some reason, that seems to switch something in people's brain where they go from like, I will say yes to be nice, which people will do. It's a very lovely trait of people to actually valuing it. And that honestly makes them think, would I buy this? Because if you get answers like, oh, I'd pay 10 bucks, then cool, you don't really have a game. <laughs> you know, people will throw 10 bucks towards anything. Whereas if people are like, oh, I really like this, I'd pay, I'd probably pay up to like 60, you know, 50, 60 bucks. And then, hey, cool. Now you're like, they've actually thought about it. They've actually put a price on it. So asking strangers, would you buy this? I don't know. For me, that is going to just lead to like, yeah, yeah, sure thing, kid. You make your game. You follow your dream. Whereas perhaps trying to pitch it as if it already existed and being like, hey, I'm trying to think of who you could do it with. You kind of want that mid-level friend, people you don't know that well, be like, hey, I'm going to play a game tonight and it's got this, this, this. And if they're like, oh, I want to play that, then hey, maybe now you've got something. Because again, you've gone from the generic, would you, to like, tonight, would you make the time to play this? And that I think is probably going to be a more reliable test of a hook. That's interesting. You know what might be fun is if we get listeners to send in their pitches to us and the next episode we can critique them and tell them, you know, do we think it's a good pitch? <laughs> what do you think of that? 
as long as they understand that we are going to be honest, then yes. sure thing. Send in your pitch and I will give you my honest, not always right, but definitely honest feedback. <laughs> Absolutely. Have some thick skin. We're not going to be doing this to uh, boost your ego necessarily, but we might. Send in a single sentence pitch to, what's our email address? Funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. Awesome. And we'll have that linked again later, as well as our Twitter and all that stuff. So what are some of the best hooks you've heard from the different categories of hooks? So for a mechanic, your favorite. I play a lot of prototypes, so I'm just kind of mentally running through. Probably a guy who then became a friend of mine. I like this game so much that I always seek him out and try to play whatever he's working on. His name's Nate, uh, Nate Wall, and he had this pitch that was basically euro vast <laughs> it's a very asymmetrical euro but it's still very much a euro so one player is playing a rondelle game one player is playing a deck builder one player is playing a bag drafter one player is playing a little domino game and i sat down and played it i was like yeah this, this is really solid they all interact on this central board but everyone's individual methods of play was completely different and I, I was just like, wow, you've got to get this to people. So get this to Lita straight away. I think Lita ended up developing it for a few months or years and then ended up dropping it. And I got it straight to Zev and Zev was like, yes, please. And I believe it's coming out from WizKids. I'm not entirely sure, but it was such a solid mechanical pitch. I was just like, yes, I want to play this. Yes, I want to play every single faction. And yes, wow, you've written eight of them and you can combine them in any combination. Holy crap, I'm so in. <laughs> wow, that does... And see, everybody listening at home, how interested are you in that pitch right now, right? <laughs> I'm at the edge of my seat. The other mechanical pitch I maybe should mention is Show and Tile, because that game got in my head. I played that, and I loved it, and I signed it and published it. So that's a very clear example. Uh, I, I hopefully don't have to disclaim the bias there, but genuinely, I picked up that game because I loved that mechanical hook so much. It's Pictionary with Tangrams, and there's something about that. It's like a puzzle communication game. Really tickled me. All right, and now for a thematic hook. The best thematic hook I've ever heard is arguably partially mechanic, but it worked mechanically because I like the theme so much, was Anachrony, mm. which is a big old Euro with big old mechs in which you can at any point get a resource from your future self. So you can just be like, man, I really need one more yellow cube. Oh, cool, I have it. But then later in the game, you've got to go back in time and give yourself that yellow cube, which involves building a time machine, taking it to the right place, going back in time, delivering that yellow cube, you know, having the yellow cube to deliver. Someone pointed out years later, it's just a loan. Really, that's just a loan. But I'm like, but it doesn't feel like a loan to me. It feels like time travel. And it has the dual feeling of gift giving. It's all the joy of getting a gift. Where you're like, oh, a gift, how nice. And then later you get to be the person giving that gift to yourself and knowing how much the other person appreciated because it was you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because in the first sort of half of the game-ish, you're just like, man, I wish I had this. Oh, <laughs> wait, I do. <laughs> <laughs> And so you can always do these like big awesome turns and then partway through the game you're like oh crap I really need to start paying these back. Or else I will break the timeline and there are these consequences if you don't do it where the timeline starts to get unstable. Mm. I loved the pitch of that game. I was told about that. I was like immediately yep let's sit down. I'm in. Let's do it. And I think I bought it the next day with all the mechs. <laughs> of course. I don't get that game to the table much because it's just slightly too much hassle to set up. It's just like right on the cusp. 
Or not even set up, even get started. There's just like one too many things where if you haven't played it for a while, it's just a little bit too hard to get back into. It's such a good game. I feel like it needed 45 minutes more of dev somehow. <laughs> it's interesting because I haven't played it in a long time and I've only played it two or three times, I think. But I remembered being able to uh, pick it up pretty quickly and uh, I was actually surprised at how easy it was to, to learn. But I don't know, maybe I'm misremembering things a little. There's something about it. I don't know. We... Because I had it, and my husband and I had it set up on the game table for seven months without playing it. And then eventually we were like, we got to pack this up, because there's just something about it that made it a little bit too hard to start. So back on to different types of hooks. Hit me with your best component hook. I think the winner, even now, almost ten years later, has got to be Zulkin. I was very early into games when I, when I heard about Zulkin, and I saw it, and I was like, look at those interacting years, and then you put it on the table, and ah, oh, it's, just, it's just such a delight. I don't think anything's beaten Zulkin for me, personally. <laughs> so now here's the, the tough one. Moment first. See, I think I know what answer you're going to say, but it might take you a minute. <laughs> I could be wrong, though. You've played a lot of games. You know what? I'm going to answer with another prototype, because... I played this prototype and I got completely obsessed with it and I contacted the designers and I was like, hey, can we work on this together? And they just never got back to me, which is very disappointing. But this game, there was one moment in it that just stuck with me. It's been almost two years now and I still think about it all the time. The concept was that you and your friends were all in an aeroplane that crashed. And so everyone starts in this cabin of a plane in the middle of the snow and you have to go out every day to get food and then come back and... It had player elimination. It went for about 20, 30 minutes. So right on the cusp of player elimination being acceptable. But it had all of these really clever mechanisms where there was never quite enough food. You never quite had as much food as you wanted. So you never wanted to say exactly how much food you had. So there's a lot of zero food cards in hands. And so it created this real great thing of, of lying. But for me, the moment in that game that made the whole thing work is that when people go out to try to find food each day, everyone inside the plane can vote and if majority vote for it, you can lock the doors. <laughs> <laughs> so you can just lock everyone who is outside in the frozen tundra out. And if they can't keep enough energy and warmth and food, they all just die. And then you can go outside and just take all the stuff off their bodies. But also you could kill other players and eat them. It had a cannibal aspect to it. So I only played it the once. I only played it once two years ago. Kurt Kavert from Smirk and Dagger was looking at it and he brought it out. And to this day, I still think about that game and like this moment where the one person inside was like, you know what, I'm going to lock the door and no one could do anything. He was alone inside. And so everyone was like, well, hopefully he will starve to death before we do because at least we can find food <laughs> and he was like i have all this food in my hand and it was this battle of wits and then he eventually died and they were able to jimmy the door back open and i was playing a very leadership role where i was like okay guys let's do this 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 and everyone was completely on board and then my skills stopped being useful so they just killed me and ate me and so i got knocked out <laughs> despite doing the right thing god that game that game delivered more of those moments than anything I've ever played before. I absolutely loved it. I really wish that they would fix it because it was incredibly broken and then put it out in some capacity. What did you think I was going to say? I thought you were going to say Twilight Imperium. Oh, Twilight Imperium is... That is almost frustratingly moment-based for me. I get annoyed <laughs> when someone plays an action card that I had no idea did exist or could exist and it's like, oh, well, I'll just play this card that undoes everything you've been doing for the entire game. And I'm like... Yeah, I guess that was a moment that wasted six hours of my life. Cool. <laughs> All right, so then the last one. What, what are your answers? I've, I've been asking you. What, what, what are your top uh, mechanisms, theme, and moment games? So my top mechanism 
I feel like I have to give credit to Vast, because Vast, as soon as I heard it, like, my jaw dropped. You're playing five different games at the same table. Imagine that as a Euro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for that one. I'm hyped. But I really, really love Inhuman Conditions, and I couldn't get that out of my head. I heard about that game when it was on Kickstarter. But basically, what I knew about it, the hook, was two-player social deduction, five minutes you have no idea what you're looking for in their speech. <laughs> you're just interviewing them and you can ask anything you want. Yeah. And that got in my head. It's funny for a lot of people that would be a thematic hook because they would just hear Voigtkampf the game and they'd be like, oh, I'm in. I'm immediately in. Yes. See, it's actually themed as Blade Runner. Yeah, that, that, that's Voigtkampf. The, the Blade Runner test is called the Voigtkampf test. Oh, <laughs> uh, derp. <laughs> you can tell I'm a huge fan. <laughs> uh, I, I could be wrong about that, but I... I... <laughs> you're probably not. But yeah, so uh, Inhuman Conditions... As soon as I heard about it, it did not leave my head. I didn't back it. I didn't even read the rule book because I was like, eh, they couldn't possibly have done it right. And then a friend showed me his copy and we played it once. And I was like, this is one of the best games I've played in my entire life. And, but like, <laughs> I was really excited to play it, even though I expected not to like it because I just couldn't understand how they could deliver on the hook. Right. What about for theme? For theme, definitely Scythe. Um, this isn't one that I'm personally that interested in, but I think it does the best job that I've seen. I cannot tell you how many times that game gets pulled off the shelf and people look at it and they're like, whoa, what is this? You know? Yeah. That's interesting because that, in a sense, was a world first game, which we didn't even mention because it's such a rare type of design. Yeah. But, Jamie, I, I guess it's related to IP. Uh, yeah, I would actually say that one was an IP first game because he had this IP. He contacted Jacob and was like, I want to license this IP for a game. And so then he had to build a game that worked within that IP. Yeah, you're technically right there. So, component first. Component first, definitely caching guns. Every single time <laughs> I pull out caching guns, everyone wants to play it and they get so excited. My favorite thing in the world is having someone who I know is not that invested in board games uh, and they're like, I, I, don't, I don't play board games, I don't like them. And I'm like, okay, just just give this one a try. And I pull out caching guns and immediately they're like, there's guns that I can shoot people? <laughs> and keep in mind, you're a Canadian, so this is not even... <laughs> Maybe that's why they're like, wait, you can have a gun? but we're not in America. How is this possible? <laughs> and what about moment design? That one, I guess for you, might be Twilight Imperium. 100% Twilight Imperium. There are so many incredible stories I have from last minute turnarounds and uh, surprises, exciting betrayals, and the moments that come up matter more. They have more impact, partially because of the game length. When you've been playing for five hours and then your uh, <laughs> alliance falls apart, they just turn to you and say, I attacked your home system. Oh, man. It <laughs> no! <matters> so much. <laughs> the highs are so high. The lows are so low. The moments in TI are, are bar none for me. I actually got into hobby gaming through Twilight Imperium. There was a, a YouTuber who I really liked, and I got a chance to meet him. And we got along. So he was like, hey, I'm playing Twilight Imperium. Do you want to come? Do you like board games? And I was like, yeah, I like board games. Of course I do. Let's go play board games. I did not like board games at the time. But I really wanted to hang out with this YouTuber. He ended up becoming one of my best friends. Uh, my, my life is a fairy tale. I ended up liking Twilight Imperium and playing it a bunch. And then we got into 18xx games. Do you know anything about that whole genre? I do, only by reputation. My Melbourne gaming group, which is where I lived before I left Australia, we call ourselves the Train Dogs. And we still have a chat that we use every day called Train Dogs because 18xx games are these incredibly long, dry train games. So we were like, how can we make this less dry? Let's pretend we're all dogs. We're all dogs running train networks. And <laughs> so we used to play a lot of Train Dogs. So I've probably played by hour as much 18xx and twilight imperium as every other game combined wow 
and train dogs oh yeah we, we used to get together once or twice a week and play these eight hour 18xx games and like you're saying with these eight hour games when you make that mistake i still remember some misplays from seven years ago now where i'm like why did i not build in new york city that turn why because five hours in you make this mistake and then you're out of the game and that's a massive feel bad moment that i try to avoid these days but oh feel bad moments really stick with you i'll tell you that <laughs> So we've touched on everything except for experience. Do you want to delineate an experience first game as opposed to the moments first and the thematic world building? Yeah, so this is actually what made me think of it. Experience for me, I would consider Twilight and Pyramid experience first game in that it's hmm. it's epic. The experience is you are having an epic experience. And I'll tell you, in Australia, to buy a game is incredibly expensive. Like We call it the Australian tax. Everything just costs more in Australia because we're on the other side of the world. And I was reading a blog called Mighty God King, which used to review board games. And he's mad into 18xx, which is how our group got into it. And he's mad into Splot of Spell. And, and he talked about Virgin Queen. And Virgin Queen is this 8 to 12 hour historical game. And the way that Shut Up and Sit Down also did a review of actually, And they're like, this game is not a historical game. This game is history. It has more sub rules and rules exceptions and weird bits of text than any other game you'll play because the primary goal of this is really just to capture the entire historical era of the Virgin Queen at the expense of everything else. And our group, who was mad into 18xx and Twilight Imperium, were like, we're in. So we bought that game, which is already a very expensive game, to Australia, basically double the price and then add shipping on top of that. And we played Virgin Queen, I think maybe three or four times before abandoning it. But that game, we really were like, let's have this experience of reliving the entire era of the Virgin Queen in this epic, you know, there's marriages, there's wars, there's area control, there's religion, there's money that, you know, your leader dies and you have to replace him with a new leader. Everything is in there. And that experience really hooked us in. That sounds really cool. What about you? For me, for experience, uh, it's got to be Kingdom Death Monster. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. That one, that is an experience. If you thought Dark Souls was taking a little too easy on you, you know, uh, this is this is the board game for you. It's uh, very unforgiving. I actually don't think it's as hard as people say it is, but it is very hard. You don't have as much control, you don't have as much agency in gameplay as you would want to or expect in other games. But the reason is, is because the game is more about uh, the story of your civilization. Right. It does a terrific job of making an individual that's just a name that you came up with and random events that happen over the course of the game feel like an emergent narrative and really build this cohesive story of each individual's character arc as well as your civilization's character arc in a way that just can't be replicated in most other games it's very demanding it's definitely not for everyone but it is it is a trip <laughs> just so that people don't walk out thinking oh experienced games need to be epic let's each name a smaller one i'll say captain sonar because this feeling of being on a team in real time against another team as battling submarines i heard about that experience and i was like yes i love team versus team i love team versus team games code names is one of my favorite games to crypto it's very rare to actually play team versus team games, ladies and gentlemen. And so anyone who offers a team versus team game, I'm immediately like, oh yes, please. It's kind of like the joy of a cooperative game, but you get to win instead of just being beat by a piece of cardboard. <laughs> so Captain Sonar for me was an experience hook that I was immediately tempted by. And this technically doesn't count, 
but I really want to throw it in. My best experience playing a game was when I was running the mega game for Break It Con the other year. That was really, really interesting. For those who don't know, a mega game is basically halfway between a board game and a role-playing game for 30 to 60 or more people. It is a trip. We'll link to the Shut Up and Sit Down video for both Mega Games and Virgin Queen. A, so you can learn about those, but also so you can see why people love Shut Up and Sit Down. Cause I think I watched both of those videos before I was even into board games. I was just so fascinated by these little documentaries. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I know people who've watched the, watched the Skies uh, movie that they put out and have no interest in board games or even playing a Mega Game ever. They just were really entertained by it. So I will I will say I asked for something that was not an epic scope and you're like, well, what about a mega game? What about a game even bigger than a normal big game? <laughs> something that's smaller in scope? I'm sorry, I'm going to go with Inhuman Conditions. A really interesting experience. They spend a lot of time on the ritual of what the game is. Before you play, you tear off a sheet of paper, you will sign it, you will date it, you will formally go through the process of developing the character for the other player. You're going to have stamps to determine whether or not they're robot or not robot. If you fail, you have to write a letter of apology to the family of the, <laughs> of the human that you just murdered accidentally. There's so many nice little flourishes that bring the game to life and make it feel like a really unique experience. Well, I know also that you came into gaming through Werewolf, and Werewolf I would list as probably the ultimate example of an experience game, where there's a bunch of stuff that mechanically I'm like, really, that's not been fixed, but it doesn't matter. The point is not to have this balanced game and have this smooth gameplay. It's about this experience and you'll see it at every con, there'll be a werewolf game going where people are just like, this is what I'm here for. I just want to play werewolf. In fact, there's a lot of games that are rough around the edges, but if you remove those rough edges, you lose out on the experience that it provides. Even if technically speaking could be thought of as problematic, you know what I mean? Yeah, it almost ties back to what you were saying earlier about a designer not knowing what goal they want to have. And so these different ways of starting a game... If you don't have one, maybe consider thinking about this and being like, okay, I'm going to build to this hook. I'm going to build to experience. I'm going to build to component. I'm going to build to product. And I think that at the end of it, you will probably have a, well, as AJ said earlier, you'll have an easier time because you'll have these signposts along the way of like, well, should I do this or this? Well, this one would remove the central component. So no, obviously not. Werewolf and Betrayal and House of the Hill are great examples of experience first games and that's all they care about but holy god do they deliver <laughs> so another thing that new designers uh, make mistakes on often is thinking way too much about their game before actually getting the game on the table which is something we mentioned in the previous podcast but it definitely bears repeating mvp get it to the table it's not a game until you've moved some bits around that's the rule 100 <laughs> percent so we can move right on from that. Here's a really controversial one, but I think you'll agree with it. A common mistake new designers make is making a semi-co-op or a legacy game or other games that are really hard to design for, like CCGs and stuff. Yeah, semi-co-op. <laughs> we might do a whole episode on semi-co-op someday. <laughs> one of the things I'm sort of best known for in the board game industry is an episode of Board Game Design Lab I did, which we'll link in the show notes, called The Two Types of Cooperative Games in which I go on a little rant about semi-co-ops. So maybe we'll, we'll do an episode on that topic someday, but my stance is that semi-co-ops, they barely exist. Really, it's just people being lazy designers. And part of the issue is that when most people say semi-co-op, what they mean is there's a winner or everyone can lose. And I'm the kind of player, and I'm definitely not alone in this, I've talked to enough people to know that this is fairly common, where 
if I'm losing anyway, why do I care about making sure that someone wins? I've played many, many, many prototypes and one or two published games, but many prototypes where if you don't do this thing, then everyone dies. And I'm in last place and people are like, Peter, we got to do this thing. And I'm like, why? Like, what's my motivation here? You're saying either I lose or we all lose. <laughs> why am I going to say either I lose or you lose as well? That doesn't motivate me to do anything. So a lot of semi-co-ops are like that. So for me, it's not necessarily a new designer. It's just any designer trying to make a semi-co-op, I think is almost a mistake. Um, but definitely legacy. Well, part of it too is that if you're a new designer, you have definitionally not designed much <laughs> like that. That's kind of comes with the territory. Not, not much you can do about that. Mm -hmm. And there's a term, again, I come from writing background. So I've always liked this. Everyone has a hundred thousand really bad words in them. Before you can write anything good, you've got to get these hundred thousand words out of your system. So sit down and start writing. And then once you've written a hundred thousand words, Hey, good. You've cleared out the bad words. Now the good words have room to start coming out. Obviously, it's just a different way of saying, get your practice in. The more you write, the, get, the better you'll get at writing. But I just really like it as a, as a visual kind of metaphor. And so think of it as, hey, you have got right now six to 12 very bad games blocking the good games from getting out. So let's get those six to 12 bad games out. And at the end of it, great. Now you've cleared the path. You can start making good games. Don't start with a legacy game because a legacy game, Jamie Stegmaier, I think, has said he's not going to do another legacy game because in the time he does one legacy game, he could do four non-legacy games. It's really such an incredibly time-consuming process that when you're starting, I really encourage people to make small games. Even if that's not what you want to make long-term, just make a couple of small games. Make a roll and write, make a game that only uses cards, make a game that has exactly 18 cards. Just do a bunch of stuff to make your mistakes early, get better at the craft, and learn what you like doing. You might at the end of it be like, man, working with 18 cards only is the most fun I've ever had. This is what I want to do. Conversely, you might be like, wow, I really hated that. Cool. Now I know that I don't want to make these tiny, tiny games. So for me, a common mistake of new designers is making either their biggest game or their big passion project first. And I'm not saying don't make your passion project, but maybe... Maybe don't start with that. Maybe make something that's a little bit more throwaway to make all your mistakes on rather than making on your passion project and being like, oh, cool, I really have to throw this away. It's a disaster or I'll spend the next 11 years redesigning this one game. The first game that I designed that is like pitchable, I, at this point I've pitched it to the one company that would probably make it and uh, haven't heard back. So I think I'll probably just put it up for free is uh, an 18 card game version of Raw. So it's essentially taking the auction mechanic from Raw and making that into an 18 card game. And again, in first episode, we talked about how working off of something that already exists is a really good place to start. Why make some new fancy mechanic before you understand why other mechanics work first, right? Right. If, if you're like, I want to make games, I want to make CCGs, I'm going to make a CCG. Whoa, 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 hang on, you've missed a step because... If you want to make CCGs, I can tell you sitting down and designing a CCG is probably not going to get you there, frankly. <laughs> if you really want to make CCGs, you probably want to work at Wizards of the Coast, and they have a whole different process that is not design your own CCG and submit it to us. That's just not how they work. So if you want to make CCGs, that's a whole different path. So I would recommend, rather than trying to make a CCG, try to get better at the fundamentals of game design. Mark Rosewater specifically works on magic, but he gets 
games. He's got such a thorough knowledge of games. His GDC talk applies to all games, not just Magic. Like, watch that, and there's all these fundamentals that will apply to every game you design. And and the other thing, too, is that, uh, again, your first game's probably a throwaway, so, hey, why not make a CCG? But taking it to a project night, people are going to be like, I don't want to playtest this. Like, you can't playtest a CCG like you can a normal game, because what are you going to do, make fake booster packs and hand them out? It's just, you're making things unnecessarily hard for yourself right off the bat. And Legacy, exactly the same thing. For sure. So moving on to mistakes that are made during the early design process, uh, which is a subtle distinction. Oftentimes, new designers will sort of throw in everything in the kitchen sink. Uh, Another thing that you said already, but again, touching on it very briefly, is you shouldn't compromise quality for reasons like historical accuracy, unless that is very specifically the main goal of your game. If your main goal is, you know, old school hex encounter war gamers, Yes, historical accuracy, very important. But unless you're trying to make a simulation or aiming for that particularly niche audience, you need to be thinking, is the game actually fun? Yeah, one rubric I definitely use is thinking of every single rule that you add to your game as having a cost of 10 fun. Every single rule you add, no matter how intuitive it might seem to you or no matter how necessary you think it might be, Every time you add a rule, that has a massive cost of 10 fun. So you've got to say, okay, does adding this rule add more than 10 fun? And without this rule, if the entire game would break, yes. Like (laughs) having a broken game is worth minus 50 fun. So yep, spending 10 fun to avoid minus 50, that's worth it. But trying to recreate minor historical things or most of these things, really, it's just not worth it. It's so rarely worth it to add a rule. A common mistake that new designers make is hot fixing or hot patching, where there's honestly some kind of core problem and they can't see the core problem because they're new. And hey, I'm not, this is not a judgment thing. It's just I couldn't see this for a very long time. You couldn't see this for a long time. And so they'll have some kind of problem and they will just hot fix, hot fix, hot fix, hot fix until eventually they have this massive orb of janky rules that all combine and you just need to go in with a scythe and cut them all off. So every time you're adding a rule, try to think, is there a more central rule that I could fix to address this or change? Because changing a rule is not the same cost as adding a rule. For sure. Basically, try to think of it every time as, can I get away with not adding this rule? And if you can get away with not adding this rule, always don't add the rule. Always. (laughs) Absolutely. And we're definitely going to be talking a lot more about this next episode. So we'll end that one there. This is like a teaser for the teaser. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, would you like to define for the audience uh, the term kill your darling? Yeah, so... As a father, you might have a lot to say about that. (laughs) So this one actually comes from writing as well originally. And kill your darling essentially means be prepared to take out your favorite thing from the game. Or, as a starting point, take out your favorite thing from the game. Obviously, in writing, it didn't mean game. But (laughs) I'm going to give you a screenwriting example. Let's say you were like, I want to make a movie about Captain Cook, the man who, quote-unquote, discovered Australia. And you start writing and you're like, oh, it'd be really fun if Captain Cook had a little talking parrot sidekick. And so you're writing and you're like, this character's so funny. He adds so much. He manages to lighten all these scenes. He's great. You write and write and write. And then you're on your 10th draft and you're like, man, something about the script isn't working. Start by removing the parrot. Start by removing the thing that you love because a surprising amount of the time that will make everything else fall into place. And the reason, I actually was talking about this on a screenwriting Discord the other day, the reason is that you are so attached to that that you can see no wrong. You've put it on a pedestal. You're like, this thing is great. So you're actually blinding yourself to the problems, not necessarily with, but around that. 
And by taking it out, it's like putting on glasses. You can suddenly see exactly what you need to do and how to fix it. So kill your darling, take out your favorite thing, and you'll be surprised at how often that allows you to fix everything else in a very short amount of time. To meet you where you live, I'll give a, uh, another screenwriting tip that applies to board games, I think. <laughs> don't correct me if I'm wrong here, because I don't write. <laughs> Not professionally, anyway. No line is worth a scene. No scene is worth a movie. And the meaning to that is obviously that one particular detail is not a good enough reason to shoehorn this in right yeah absolutely you can destroy a scene with a single line don't destroy the scene for the sake of the line you can destroy a movie for a single scene don't destroy the movie for the sake of that one scene in my screenwriting career i've been working on this a lot lately i got some mentors recently and they're like hey peter maybe cut out some of these jokes i'm like but they're very good jokes and they're like yeah but you know that you can write good jokes so cut these make the script better and then go in and add jokes because you know you can do jokes you've done this Hmm. i'd learned this from board games actually my friend jeff who i mentioned last time i hired him to do dev on a game called coral kingdoms when i handed it to him i was like go to town on this i've been working this for two years i don't know how to fix it please do whatever you can to fix it but keep in this mechanism because i like it and he did and in the meantime i went off and i was like i like that mechanism so much maybe i should try to build a different game out of that 40 minutes later, I had an almost functioning game with this other mechanism. So I got back to Jeff and I was like, I'm sorry I said to keep that, just cut it. If you have a fun little mechanism you like, that definitionally means that you are good at coming up with fun little mechanisms. There is no reason to think that you won't be able to do that again. This is not a scarcity thing. If you did it once, you'll be able to do it again. Just cut it from this game, put it in your workflow of ideas to use in future games. I guess this is also kill your darlings. Just realize that the game will survive without that one idea and that you're not losing that idea from cutting at this. Sure, you like it, great. You came up with something you liked. That doesn't mean it has to go here. Don't ruin the scene for a line. Don't ruin the, the movie for a scene. For sure. Uh, another thing that new designers will often, this is something that they'll keep in mind, but not to the extent that I think they should. Good games trend toward a conclusion. So what that means is, it doesn't have to be every turn, but it should be probably every round of play we have advanced closer toward the game ending. If a round can occur where everybody takes actions and nothing occurred that presses the game closer towards the end of the game, well then you you might hit a stalemate or a lull and that's boring and it can waste a lot of time. Yeah, I call this a clock. Every game needs a clock. And some games, that's very obvious. Uwe Rosenberg, a lot of his games are, this game will take place over eight rounds. Cool. Going in, you know exactly what the clock is. If you don't want to do that, and there are reasons not to, you've got to think about, okay, what is going to cause the end of this game? Is it possible for this game to literally go on forever? Because again, a lot of new designers, their prototypes have no reason that the game won't go on forever. Even worse is when they are incentivized for it to go on forever, (laughs) when everyone's incentives all line up to extend the game. So as you said, the game needs an ending in general, but also a reliable ending is nice because you want to put on the box five to 15 minutes, 60 to 90 minutes. You don't want to put five to 280 minutes. That's a ridiculous range. You really need to work out, okay, how long is this game going to go? And make sure that there is something in the game that pushes you in that direction. Whether that's a hard incentive, like there are a certain number of rounds, or you get 10 points every time you move the round tracker once. Or if there's soft incentives, like you don't want to do this, or scarcity. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it. But yeah, sit down someday and be like, I'm going to play three different players of this game. And one of them is going to try and make the game go as long as possible. Can they do that? Because if they can, you have a problem. An interesting example of this is in Magic the Gathering. A lot of people like to complain that life gain cards in Magic the Gathering aren't pushed, meaning they're not competitively viable. 
That's very, very intentional. <laughs> and oftentimes, the things that gain you life are tied to things that can end you the game. They've got a, a keyword ability, so an ability that comes up frequently called lifelink, which means when your creature deals damage, you gain life. Right. You'll notice that the creature has to deal damage, therefore trending towards the conclusion in order for you to actually gain that life and if that wasn't enough magic the gathering then has a backup clock which is as soon as someone's deck runs out they lose and you have to draw a card from your deck every turn so one thing i really like is there's actually a third end condition in every game of competitive magic because what can happen is in some particularly bizarre metas you can have two different decks playing against each other they're both the control deck meaning they are trying to stall out the game and play more powerful cards later and they can do stuff like putting cards back on top of their deck and uh right to stall and that might be their win condition to make their person stall out but if both decks are doing that you just stall infinitely and so they actually have a clock and so if a game goes longer than x minutes then the match is over you've got a couple more turns to go and then they have a tiebreaker <laughs> and so even they realize that even though they've got the life point clock and the card clock they actually need a literal clock just to guarantee it because magic's wild. Yeah, absolutely. So another thing that fun designers often put into their designs are what I call unfun effects. You, I know, have a particular bugbear among these. Uh, what, what do you think I'm talking about? I call these feel-bad moments if we're talking about the same thing. And the one that really springs to mind is the no you don't card, which is one player goes, I've set up this really cool move and I'm going to do this. And the other person's like, oh, well, I have this card in my hand that says, nah. And oh my goodness, I have, yeah, this, this is a passionate hate of mine. This is where I'm like, look, I am particularly against this, but just so you know, I'm not alone in this. As a publisher, I take them out of my games. I take them out of everything. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. <sighs> now, what's interesting, just for a little bit of grit here, I love playing them. <laughs> in Magic, I was, you know, the counterspell guy. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I love playing canceling or countering moves one way that they can be done well is offering counterplay right so it's not i just cancel the thing you do it's i can cancel the thing you do under these particular circumstances that you can play around or anticipate and avoid right so there are ways to do it well but in general yes saying you can't do the fun thing is not adding to the amount of fun being had in the game yeah the spiel i normally go on is i right now I'm not playing your game. If I'm going to sit down and play your game, please don't make me continue to not play your game. I was already not playing your game. By putting a card in that says, no, you don't. You don't get to play this game. I'm like, then why am I here? I, I was already not playing your game and I was recording a podcast with my friend AJ. I'd much <laughs> rather be doing that than sitting at a table with your cards in my hand, not playing your game. That doesn't make any sense to me. The other way that this can actually come about is when people are able to exactly undo someone's turn. So it's not necessarily a card that says... Nah, mm. it can just be, okay, I'm going to plant this tree. Oh, well, as my turn, I'll unplant this tree. Okay, cool. I, like, why am I here? <laughs> What's the point? I'll put a leash on the dog. Oh, well, I'll take the leash off the dog. Great. Like, I'm not doing it. I'm not building towards anything. I'm not accomplishing anything. I'm sitting at the table, not playing your game. It's so frustrating to me. Now, that's skip a turn or cancel your card mechanics. What about player elimination, the ultimate version of this? How do you feel about that? Player elimination is interesting because it depends on what kind of game you're trying to make, but it's generally frowned upon. I think we can agree that the industry as a large is like, don't put player elimination in your game. Certainly. And I understand what they're saying with that. There's different forms of it, though. So 
I know that gamers hate it, so I'm less likely to publish a game with player elimination because people will hear player elimination, they'll be like, oh, I hate that, I won't buy this game. And it doesn't really matter how it's implemented. So there's definitely something to be said for just avoiding it for the sake of sales. But if you have, a, again, it's, it's a cost thing. It's like adding a rule. Player elimination is minus 7% of sales. Is it worth it? Like, can you build it in a way that doesn't do that? If so, probably do, you'll get more sales. Just as bad though, is when people are like, well, people hate player relations, so I'll make sure that everyone is in the game the whole time, <laughs> even if they have nothing to do. That's arguably worse because if I'm actually eliminated from a game, I can stand up, go off and record a podcast with my friend AJ. I'm not at the table anymore, but I'm also able to live my life. Whereas if I'm in the game and just have nothing I can do and no way of winning, that is worse because now I'm not playing your game, but I'm sitting at the table playing your game. I found it interesting that Tapestry, the most recent Stonemaier game, sort of had the worst case scenario here where anyone can end their fifth era at pretty much any time. You could do it on the fifth turn if you wanted to, it would be a very weird play. Once you do that, you can't get any more points, you don't take any more turns, so you can stand up and walk away from the table, which is great. Generally speaking though, it's an efficiency game, and the more turns you can take, the more points you're going to get. Maybe efficiency game is the exact wrong term, but it's a game of the longer you stay in, the more points you're going to earn. So by dropping out, you've probably lost. It's this weird thing where if you have completed your fifth era before any other player, I'd love to see the stats on it, you've probably not won. So now you can't really leave because you still want to see what the final scores are. You definitely can't do anything. You literally can't do anything in the game. It was kind of voluntary, but you do get forced to do it. So it's kind of like half player elimination, half not elimination, but being forced to sit at the table. It's a weird combination of them. I don't hate player elimination. Coup is one of my favorite games that airplane cabin game I was talking about that had player elimination as a core part of the game. I think that it can be done really well in interesting, fun ways. I just know that the market, generally speaking, hates it, so I try to avoid it for that reason. And you'll find you can honestly avoid it pretty easily. Dracula's Feast, one of my logic games, used to have player elimination, and then we cut it, and it became a much better game of it. So try to cut it. If you can cut it and it makes a better game, great. If you cut it and it makes a worse game, do the math and be like, okay, is it worth it being slightly worse and selling way more copies? Probably not, but maybe. So there's a few things that you said that I want to touch on. Thing number one is I think that player elimination is a poor solution to the problem that you mentioned, being that you're stuck in a game that you know you're not going to win. Yeah, both of them are often used as solutions to each other. Right. <laughs> People are like, well, you can't do anything, so we should eliminate them. People are like, oh, I hate player elimination, so they should stay in. So mm -hmm. either way, that can be bad, and maybe that's indicative of a more central problem with your game. Yeah, and we'll probably go into this in a later episode in more detail. Hidden information, secret goals, hidden victory points, and stuff like that are easy solutions to it but i think there's a lot more that we can talk about with that but i also wanted to mention that the general use case for player elimination is to raise the stakes what player elimination does is it means you cannot play this game and continue having fun if you fail so there's no higher risk that you can get to than saying you cannot play with us anymore until this game is over right obviously like you said that feels really horrible especially if it's very long the general industry wisdom is like in a short game or if you can only be eliminated after a certain point, then it becomes more acceptable. But that is the use case I wanted to mention. The most dangerous is turn one elimination. Cool. I guess I'll just watch my friends play an hour and a half because I've been eliminated and everyone else is still in. <laughs> yeah, the first version of Cashing Guns. I don't know. Do you ever play that one? I've only played Cashing Guns once, so I couldn't tell you which version it was. Okay, so basically in Cashing Guns, you've got guns and then you've got bullet carts. And you either have bullets or you have blanks. You either load the gun with a bullet that's actually going to hit someone and reduce a life point, or you shoot them with a blank, nothing happens. But in the first edition, there was a card that just shot three times 
therefore instantly eliminating the person you aimed at. So on turn one, someone could die. And yes, you can always choose to duck, but you don't know what you're being shot at. That's the whole like mind games thing. Right. Man, what a what a weird choice. Obviously, that was taken out in the <laughs> second edition. One more thing I want to touch on in terms of really unfun effects isn't just uh, canceling your turns, but it's placing restrictions on your opponent. Saying things like, your movement in a game that is about movement is reduced to one this turn. Well, functionally, that's not that much more different from me missing a turn, right? Yeah. Skip a turn mechanics. Again, they're like Play Nation. They're kind of painted with a brush of never do it. But there is a big difference in skip a turn in a two-player game and skip a turn in an eight-player game. Very true. Because in a two-player game, you just, they do one more turn. And like, yeah, sure, it's a little bit annoying, but it's also annoying every time they take a turn. So it's not really a huge magnification. Skip a turn in an eight-player game means that something like 14 turns are going to happen before you get to do anything. (laughs) And reverse is very similar where it's like, oh, it's almost my turn. Oh, it's reverse. And now it has to go all the way back around the table before it's me again. People see these mechanisms from Uno and they're like, oh, cool, game mechanism. Unless, again, there's a cost to using them that just just be aware of it. I'm not saying never do it. It's not a, a rule of like never, ever put player relation or skip a turn in. But just be aware of what you're asking people to do, which is sit at a table with cards in their hand, not playing your game. Mm-hmm. One thing I don't think gets thought of enough by new designers is building in heuristics for players to help them understand what they're doing faster. Again, uh, (laughs) recurring theme, we we touched on a lot of these things very briefly earlier, but there's one in particular that uh, I know that you have a bugbear for with Seven Wonders. Do you want to mention that one? What is it? Uh, Starting Coins. Starting Coins? Oh, okay, wow. (laughs) So one thing that I know that bothers Peter very much, because I know him extremely well, better than he knows himself... (laughs) is that in the game Seven Wonders, the original one, you would start off with seven cards to draft and six coins. And the mental... Why? (laughs) Why why do it like that? Why, Antoine Basel? Why? (laughs) And they changed that in Seven Wonders Duel. You do start off with seven coins, but as you so rightly put... When you're talking to me, not on camera, it's a thing that you should balance around the thing that makes it easier for people to remember the rules. Whenever you have a start game and you have to say, oh, how many cards did we get? How many coins did we get? What are the starting resources? That's so annoying. Make it easy for people by doing things like that. Yeah. Oh, you can do other stuff. And this is more, I guess, at the end of the process where your little player mat tells you exactly what you started with. Cool. I don't have to go searching through a rule book. I can just look down. Feast for Odin does a good job of this. On the player board for Feast for Odin, in the corner, it just lists exactly what you start the game with, and you never have to go digging through the rulebook for it. Okay, here's a pro tip that not enough games use. The back of the rulebook should be <laughs> either a quick reference if you have a lot of iconography and stuff, or it should be a setup guide if setup is particularly cumbersome in your game. It's so easy to just flip the rulebook face down and just take a quick look at it and see exactly what you need to do. And very few games put anything on the back. It's prime real estate. One thing that we will almost certainly talk about at great length is blind playtesting because I am an evangelical blind playtester. And something that I particularly learned from doing a lot of blind playtesting is just how much people love reference cards. You will rarely see me bring even a first prototype to the table without a reference card. It just means that you have just a little bit more wiggle room as to what you can add to your game. I'm not saying do a series of six reference cards that are all blocks of text on both sides, but just something that's a turn flow or a conversion chart or whatever it is. I don't understand why more people don't do it. Ever since we started blind playtesting, every Jellybean game comes with a reference card for every player with 
almost everything they need to know. And because our games are very simple, that's easy to do. But even my bigger games, like Robots has a little reference card that just says, here are the three steps you've a turn. That's it. And it just means no one ever has to ask. You never even have to think about it. Reference cards, reference cards, reference cards, especially for prototypes. And the other thing too is that as you make more of them, you'll get better at condensing information and presenting information in a way that people can understand easily. Again, I'm not saying make the world's most complicated game and be like, but I got a reference card so I can get away with it. But the more you make reference cards, the more you work out what people actually want from the reference cards, especially if you see how people use them. And yeah, I just love them. I love reference cards. This one's going to sound obvious, but you need to end the game while the players are still having fun, but <laughs> give them enough time to actually like explore the game and play with all the toys that they've gone over the course of the game, right? Yeah, th this one I can't blame new designers for too much. This is something that you just learn from doing it. Mm. It's very hard to do. And this is one that comes into play not early in the process, but later in the process, once you've seen through playtesting when the fun ends, right? Yeah, with an early prototype, I'll often send the points to win too high and then watch people and be like, aha, someone just hit 40 points and this feels like a good time to end therefore this is what the end state of the game will be mm -hmm. so it, it's a common mistake in that <laughs> new designers don't know how to design a game very well but i'm, I'm not too annoyed about that one <laughs> for sure on to prototyping so peter i've got a new game idea should i patent it trademark it uh, get people to sign <laughs> ndas what am i doing almost definitely not i'm not going to say never but in 99.999 percent of cases that would be a huge waste of time and a huge waste of money and more importantly, it would signal, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Toys are a little bit different. So if you're coming from toy industry, people might get confused. But this industry, and in fact, most creative industries, that kind of stuff is only done by companies at a certain level when they've reached a certain amount of fame and wealth and power and IP, frankly. Right now, you as a new designer, you don't need to do any of that. If you really think, if you really truly think you've got the best idea that is so good you need to patent it or tomorrow a big game company is going to swoop down and steal it, firstly, you're almost certainly wrong. I'm sorry, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but that has not ever really happened. Secondly, take it to that company <laughs> because if your idea is really that good, they would much rather sign it than steal it. Mm. There is not a single company I know of that would rather steal a game than sign it a, it would completely trash their reputation in a fairly small industry. B, why open yourself up to lawsuits when you could just pay someone who came up with the idea? And C, if you really come up with this idea that's so amazing that it's going to make them millions of dollars, maybe they should get in with you and then the second idea that will make millions of dollars they can also have. So I would say that's a, a hard no from me. I'm not saying never. And as the industry grows, maybe that will change. But... Generally speaking, it's not something you have to worry about, and it will make you look like a complete amateur and someone who's more hassle to work with than they're worth. Frankly, the amount of money they would have to pay you as a designer, the industry <laughs> doesn't pay much to designers, yeah. so that's a pretty small cost, all things considered. And the amount of money that you'd have to pay to get it patented or trademarked uh, and defend it is going to be more than you would actually make from selling the game. Easily, yeah. It's Again, maybe you've got the next... I can't even think of a board game that's, you know, the next Settlers of Catan. But Settlers of Catan was big because it was from a certain time in a certain place. It's not because it was such an amazing idea. It's very good. I'm not dissing Settlers of Catan, but you don't have to worry about that, frankly. Another thing new designers often do is put way too much time and effort into the prototype. The prototype does not need to look amazing. I've seen people with, like, multi-hundred-dollar wooden boards. My first prototype that I ever worked on, meticulously chosen art for each individual card it was really <laughs> meticulous and the first time i played it i was like oh this is garbage i have to throw all this in 
redo everything again, right? Yeah, I'm going to talk about MVP again. Minimal viable prototype not only means the bare minimum to make it playable, it also means the bare minimum to make it prototypable. I know that you, AJ, will often handwrite on cards. Just scraps of paper, handwrite, cool. We've got a prototype, we can play. And I've played with these prototypes, and sometimes your handwriting is a little messy, but 95% of the time, it's really not an issue, especially for how easily you're able to put together and how easy it is to make changes. For that first prototype especially, just do whatever you can to get it on the table as quickly as possible. I will often prototype digitally. I will just quickly throw together something in paint and then just move them around. I'll use the marquee tool and move stuff around in paint just to get the bits moving to see if this functions at all. I definitely won't spend two weeks in InDesign making it all look perfect and picking art and doing everything I can to make the prettiest, most beautiful game I can, it's just a waste of time. Once you've got that first prototype out of the way, sure, maybe put a little bit of time into making it presentable and making sure that your prototype is not getting in the way of the game, but you don't need to make it pretty. Absolutely, and what you said there, getting in the way of the game, that's the big crux of the issue. So when you're making the prototype, the things that you should be caring about after your first prototype, and you say, okay, I have a game here, time to put in a little bit of effort, you need really clear and understandable iconography. You need clean text, pick a good font, make sure it's a reasonable size. And that's about it for, for the early stages. I think a decent rule of thumb is to say that your prototype should look about as good as, it, as the game is complete. The earlier it is, the worse it should look. Once you gain <laughs> it right to like pitch, okay, then put in maybe a little bit more effort, right? Am I crazy? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I think that makes total sense. I... We'll say that for me the one exception is that once that first prototype is done, the very messy paint one, I will do reference cards. Maybe a little bit earlier in the process than one technically should, but I just really like having those reference cards. Other than that, I find it really helpful just to have a file that is, you know, cards, so I don't have to be like, what font will I use? How big will the text be? Just make a template, or find one, there's probably a bunch online, and use that. Don't care about being like, well, this is a wizard game, so I need a wizard font, or... Well, this game, I want it to evoke the feeling of nature, so I'm going to choose exactly what shade of green. Don't care about any of that for the first few prototypes. Just make sure that the mechanics of the game work before you care too much about the frills. 100%. On to playtesting. Or did you have anything else for prototypes? Yeah, one thing. This is, again, a very personal bugbear. I hate it when people expect me to track stuff using dice. I think this comes from Magic the Gathering. I don't know why people do it. If you give me four dice, I want to roll them dice. That's what dice are for. Dice are for rolling. I don't want to tick up all my different resources on dice. Just don't do it. Just get cubes from another game or build a track or anything that isn't making me tick up dice because I just find it really unpleasant on a tactile level. That's a very specific note, <laughs> but you're right. In the few games that I've played where you have dice and you don't roll them, it pisses people off. It's such a thing with new designers. I don't know why. New designers are like, oh, we need to track all this stuff. I'm going to use dice. And it's just, it's really a good idea. Just don't do it. Just don't do it, my friend. Hi, everyone. It's AJ from the future here. Uh, I just wanted to explain why we were cutting the episode here instead of having our usual banter at the end of the episode. This one just went on a little longer than usual. Well, a lot longer. It ended up being two episodes worth. And uh, we just had a lot to say about it. And so rather than uh, just not talking about everything we wanted to cover, we decided to just turn this into a two-parter. So this episode is going to end here. And then the next episode is going to be the continuation of it. So just want to explain that to everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.
thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.